0: Let's pray, Father. Your Word tells us, makes it very clear that the heavens declare the glory of God; that all the earth does and and will and was created to sing your praises, Lord. I'm still sort of chewing on what Mike shared with us in in communion, Lord, and, and just how true it is that all of creation uh, speaks to and and proclaims your your glory, Father. That it that it in fact points us to Jesus Christ, Father. When we consider that that the the examples of insects and snow, two things that most of us grow tired of very, very quickly, in their own way, point us to Jesus. Father, what else can we say but praise God? What an amazing God we have who, who has designed all things to turn our attention to you, to your son, Jesus Christ, Father. And that's what, I think that's what your word maybe means. And, and, and it just, it amplifies what your word says when it says we're all without excuse, Father. We should be able to look in any direction and realize that the heavens tell of the glory of God and all the earth speaks to your, your creative power. Father, what your word also says is that we're the pinnacle of that creation, Lord, that you created us different from everything else. You created us for a relationship with yourself. That that we of all the living things that you created are the ones that can speak the name of Jesus, the ones who can praise you, God Almighty. And Father, we're we're familiar with that and and and, and we're comfortable with it. But Father, I thank you this morning that for me, if no one else, Lord, you've just sort of reawakened me to the fact of what a great privilege it is. What an incredible honor to speak and to glorify the name of Jesus. Father, that's something we not just in our singing this morning, but in our study of your word as well. And I pray that as we open it now that you will give us minds that are clear and, and hearts that are open. And Father, that that through the things that are said and, and, and where you have intended that, that they will strike us, Father, that it'll be clear that it's not about what I've come up here to say, but it's what you want to speak to each and every heart through your word and how you want to push and, and move each one of us toward Christ, toward maturity in him. And Lord, I pray that that will happen. But for it to happen, we need you. We need your spirit to come and guide us in the truth. We need your spirit to guard us from error and misunderstanding. Father, we need you to to deliver us from some stuff this morning. Everybody's stuff is different, but it's, it's all there and it all gets in the way. We want you to move it, Father, so that for the next little while we can and that we will see Jesus. Father, I pray that it will be Jesus we see clearly this morning as we study your word. I pray that it will be Jesus only that we see this morning in the study of your word. And that through it and because of it we'll leave rejoicing in and for the great name of Jesus, in whom we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And as you're doing so, go ahead and grab your Bible, if you have it with you. I hope that you do. And turn it into Acts chapter 4, picking up in God's Word where we left off last Sunday, Acts chapter 4. And uh, and as you're finding your way there, this has nothing to do with the message, but every once in a while I just kind of use this as an opportunity to Maybe give some encouragement or just a gentle reminder. I've got a bit of a reminder this morning, or maybe it's new information if you're newer to our church family, um, that of course as we're having worship here right now, there's Sunday school going on, there's nursery happening, and one of the things we like folks to do, and I've just been asked if I would reiterate this. Um, is that when we get to the end of the service and we go out of the message and into our final song, that is when we would like it if you have kids in the nursery or in Sunday school have to be uh, retrieved. (laughs) That would be the time you go do that when we begin singing. I know nobody likes to miss the last song. It kind of pulls the service together, but sometimes what happens is, is in our singing and then in the inevitable fellowship that follows, we have volunteers who are staying 10 and 15 minutes longer over there, and they're missing out on the fellowship. So for their sort of sacrifice of blessing us by caring for our kids, we would ask you would sacrifice a portion of the last song. If you have kids over there, go get them bring them back, and then stay as long as you like after that. So, but we just want to encourage you uh, for that. We've had some, some volunteers who've been spending a little bit extra time over there, and uh, we want to try to free them up at the end of the service. So that's just a little bit of, like I said, a general reminder of, of the way we want to do things here in our services on Sunday morning. But now we want to get to God's word what I know you are actually here for. Uh, At this point of the service, and as I said, we're in Acts chapter 4, and we're going to begin reading uh, the final 15 or 16 verses of this chapter in just a couple of minutes, but before we do that, I want to tie a few things together, because this morning we come to the conclusion of a a saga that began back at the beginning of Acts chapter 3, and if you were here two weeks ago, you remember, or even last Sunday we talked about it, you remember what that, where it all began, which is that Acts chapter 3 began with a miracle, Began with a miracle performed by the apostles Peter and John. They were on their way into the temple. It says they were going there at the, the appointed hour of prayer. They were going to worship God. And as they were on their way to the temple, they healed the man. By the power and in, as we just sang, the great name of Jesus, they healed the man whom the Bible said had been lame from birth. We don't know what the, the nature of his ailment, of his malady was, but he was unable to, to move and, and, and get himself where he needed to go and do what, what he wanted to do. And so they healed him in the name of Jesus. Now, the reason I call that story a saga, or that what it led to is a sort of saga, is because while the miracle itself that Peter and John performed, it comes and goes in the span of the first eight verses of Acts chapter 3, the impact of it, the ramifications of it continue all the way through the rest of chapter 3, and for the past couple of Sundays, we've seen it goes all the way through Acts chapter 4 as well, one miracle. And what we've seen, and what we're going to continue to see in God's word this morning, is that That it had a very dramatic, this one singular miracle had a very dramatic and far-reaching impact in two very distinct and very different ways. One of the far-reaching impacts of the miracle Peter and John performed is that it propelled, uh, the, the miracle that they performed propelled the church forward toward continued dramatic growth. Because what Peter did is they healed this man, and then Peter used the occasion of that healing. Suddenly he has everybody's attention, and he begins to use that to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it says back in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, it says that many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men, not even counting the women and children, came to be about 5,000 People. So this act of healing, in one sense, it propelled the church forward numerically toward radical continued growth, but as we saw last week, it also did something else very different. This miracle that Peter and John performed, healing a lame man, an act of mercy on the way into the temple, also ignited something the church had not experienced before, and that was, as we talked about it last Sunday, pressure. They began to experience focused opposition to their faith in Jesus Christ. And that's what the verses right before Acts 4 foretell us. It says, as they were Peter and John were speaking to the people, the priests and captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees, in other words, all the religious big shots in the land, came up to them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the, from the dead. And so we saw what they did with them last Sunday is they laid hands on Peter and John and threw them in jail until the next day because it says it was already evening. This miracle propels the church forward toward growth. At the same time, it start, it ignites, it sparks pressure and persecution. But what we zeroed in on last Sunday, particularly in view of the pressure and of the persecution, what we discovered in God's word, or what I hope we discovered through it, is that while pressure is something we always find unwelcome, nobody likes it, Nobody goes around inviting more. Yeah, give me one. If there's one thing I need more of in my life, it's pressure. Please, give me more. Nobody likes it. We never find pressure to be something that is welcome. What we discovered, at least when it comes to the pressure we face for our faith, it isn't always necessarily unhelpful. It may be unwelcome, but may not be unhelpful, because what we discovered, and we're going to continue to see today, is sometimes God can take that pressure and use it in extraordinary and unexpected ways. And this morning, as we seek to wrap this story up here at the end of Acts chapter 4, what we're going to see is this, that whether or not that happens... Whether or not the pressure becomes something constructive, spiritually constructive, whether or not through it uh, there might be spiritual fruit that comes, and God does amazing and extraordinary things, comes down to certain choices. Where do we turn when the pressure is on? What do we choose to do when the pressure builds against us, whether it's opposition to our faith or any other kind. We'll listen to the story here at the end of Acts chapter 4, and then we'll talk about what some of those choices might be. I'm going to begin reading in Acts 4 verse 23. am going to go down through the end of the chapter. Here's what God's Word says. It says, when they, Peter and John, had been released from prison, they went They went to their own companions, that's the church in Jerusalem, and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. Now, if you've forgotten, what they said to them is stop it. (laughs) Stop preaching in the name of Jesus, or we will make things harder still. So, what do they come? They come back and they deliver good news or bad news. It sounds like bad news. Verse 24 And when they, the church, heard this, here's what they did they lifted their voices to God with one accord. And they said, O oh Lord, it's you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them, who, through, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servants said, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, this sounds familiar, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. and abundant grace was upon them all, for there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales, lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, he sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, I would suggest to you that despite the reality of Peter and John's imprisonment, and despite the fact that they came back from or out of that imprisonment with news that, gang, it ain't going to get better, it's going to get worse, I would suggest to you that despite those two things, this is a remarkably upbeat story. That that despite the fact that the, the entire Jewish religious establishment is aligned and oriented against them, they don't seem real shook up about it. They seem like they're taking it in a very optimistic and a hopeful kind of way. And I would also suggest to you that the reason for that stems from three choices they made when the pressure was on. Stems from three, I will call them this morning, right turns those first Christians made when they were faced with and confronted with pressure, specifically pressure for their faith. Let me tell you what those three things are. Number one. This story tells us that when the pressure was on, that that, that when the, the opposition was increasing, the first and the most important thing these early believers did is they turned to God for help. The first right turn these believers made is they turned to God for help. Let me ask you something. How do you pray when the pressure's on? How do you pray when in your life the heat is being turned up? Uh, The weight is beginning to press you down. How do you pray when the hawks are down too with 10 seconds to go? What do your prayers sound like when life is hard? I don't know how you pray. I don't know what your prayers sound like, but I know what mine sound like. Lord, make it stop. (laughs) Take it away. I don't like pressure. I don't want pressure. And I want you to get it out of my life because I could really use some peace. I'm not a fan of pressure. Maybe yours sound the same way. But then I find that sort of prayer, Even, and I'm not, I'm not necessarily sure it's wrong to pray that way. God, make it stop, okay. But sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't. I just find it convicting that that's not how the church prayed here. When they were introduced to this new reality of spiritual, religious, for their faith, pressure. Because while the prayer itself, they actually began praying back in verse 24, they pray all the way down through verse 30. It actually isn't until those last two verses, 29 and 30, that they actually begin laying anything resembling a request before God. And when they do, look at what they said. Look at verse 29 in your Bible. Here's their request And now, Lord, here it is. Take note of their threats. Take note of their threats. Not exactly the most dynamic prayer I've ever heard. But why do they pray that way? I think that they are praying that way because here's what they are saying. They're saying, Lord, there's some big, powerful, mean kind of people aligned against us, and there isn't anything we can do to change it. We can't get them out of office. We can't get them out of the way. We can't make them stop doing the kinds of things they're doing to us. So guess what, Lord? They aren't our problem anymore. They're yours. You deal with them. You take care of them. And by the nature of what they don't say here, they do not get into what I often get to in my prayers when I'm dealing with a difficult person or a difficult situation. They do not dictate to God how he should go about it. I do that. Lord, here's what I want you to do. Here's how quickly I want you to do it. Here's the intensity. And Lord, if you just follow my plan, all will be well again. They don't do that here. Lord, they're your problem, not mine, not ours. Take note of their threats. Deal with them accordingly. We are not going to sit around fretting about all the wrong they have done us. Why? Because of something else they understood. That Jesus had given them a job to do and they did not wish to deviate from the assignment. Lord, you need to take care of the bad guys. You need to take care of the tough stuff because what it says in the rest of verse 29, this is the second part of their request. Lord, you take note of their threats and grant us, grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. Now that's interesting. Because if you recall what we saw last week, what we saw is these big, bad, ugly religious authorities, what they said to them, is stop talking about Jesus. Stop preaching, and the pressure will go away. What do they pray? Lord, give us the courage and the boldness to keep on doing what they told us not to do. Why? Because they were rebellious? No, because they had a higher calling. They had a bigger assignment. As Warren Wiersbe puts it in his commentary on these verses, it's interesting, he says, they didn't ask for protection, they asked for power. Power to obey. Power to preach Christ boldly, despite the fact that everything was lining up against them. Then they asked for one more thing in verse 30. They said, Lord, you take care of the bad guys. Give us the power to keep on preaching, to keep on living and proclaiming the gospel of Christ with confidence while, verse 30, you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Now, there's a lot of ways we could take this verse. I'm just going to give you the bottom line. The bottom line here in verse 30 if I am understanding this correctly, is they are simply saying, Lord, and in all of it, make sure that everybody knows it's your deal. That the things that are happening and the people who are being saved and the miracles that are occurring and all this other stuff, you keep on doing them, Lord. You keep on doing amazing things so that people will look at that and go, wow, only God could have done that. These guys are untrained fishermen. They have no education. They have no power in and of themselves. It's about Christ. Take care of the bad guys. Empower us to do our assignment. And make sure that along the way everybody knows that the surpassing greatness of the power is you. It just happens to reside in us. But it's you. Bottom line, the pressure did not prompt a retreat. They didn't turn and run. Now, think about that in terms of the adversity that's going on in your life today. Maybe you're not all in the midst of adversity, I would hazard a guess that some of you are, and maybe it's for your faith, and maybe it's for something else entirely. Let me ask you something. Is it easy or not easy to pray this way? Who's in the easy camp? Oh, it's just easy to say, Lord, you take care of it. Let me just keep right on doing what got me in trouble in the first place because it was the right thing to do. Is that, who's in the easy camp Who's in the not easy camp? That's where I'm parking, right there, okay? Not an easy way to pray. Say, God, it's all your your thing. You do it. You take care of it. My inclination, again, is to tell God how to fix it and make it go away. But that's not what they did here, and I think I know why. It took me a while, but I think I know why. It's because of what they understood about God, about who he was, about his, his power and his nature and his character, To put it another way, their theology was right. It dictated the way they prayed. How do I know that? Go back to verse 24. It said verse 24 is where they began praying that led them to to this kind of request. I want you to look at how they began the prayer. Because it says in verse 24, when they heard this, when they heard the pressure's not going away, if we keep talking about Jesus, they're gonna continue to make our lives miserable. They lifted their voices to God with one accord, and they said, here's how they began. First words out of their mouth. Oh, Lord your Bible perhaps says sovereign Lord. That's a very interesting term. and, And it was familiar more in the Old Testament. We don't see it as often, perhaps, in the New Testament. But the original Greek term that Luke used there for Lord is the Greek term from which we get our English word despot. Do you know what a despot is? Despot is somebody you don't mess around with. Someone who has unchallengeable power. They have all the money, all the resources, all all the assets. Everything is in their favor. The buck stops with them and nobody gets to go, but wait a second, look at it another way. What am I saying? I'm saying that's how they began their prayer. Lord, we got bad guys making life hard. We've got pressure that's beating down and closing in, but what do we know and what's the first word out of our mouth? They may be big, but you're bigger. And they answer to you. And they will they, they, they will have to answer to you because you're going to do whatever you please. And here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that's who the early church knew God was. Sovereign Lord. Absolute power. No surprises with him. That's why they're able to say, okay, God, you handle the problem. Give us power to keep moving forward. Let us keep proclaiming the gospel and not sit around crying about how hard it is to be a believer it is hard sometimes. Make no sense. Sometimes, sometimes we do sit around and cry about it. We're not going to stay there. Let's do what he called us to do. Let the main thing stay the main thing. Even if nothing about the situation changes. What am I saying? I'm saying the first right turn the early church took in adversity was they turned to God for help. While at one and the same time, they made a second turn. Second right turn. A second choice in the midst of adversity. It was this. Not only did they, number one, turn to God for help, they, number two, turned to Scripture for clarity. They turned to the Word for understanding. Now, if you've not, if you've been in on this study of Acts so far, but not picked up on this particular point already, I want you to do something this week, and it'll only take you a few minutes. I want you to go back and just read. You don't have to read hard, but just read through chapters one, two, and three, and see how often it was that these early believers went to the Scriptures. Now, they had what we call the Old Testament. That's all they had. The New Testament was in the process of being put together. All that was the Old Testament. What you see in every single chapter, and I'm pretty sure in every single scene we are presented with, is sooner or later, somebody starts quoting scripture. Somebody starts saying the equivalent of, the Bible says. Every time. Go back and read it. You'll be amazed at how how consistently and, and constantly they went to God's word, and they went there first to understand what they were dealing with and why things were that way. And then I want you to realize that here in Acts chapter 4 at the end of the story, nothing's changed. They're still doing the same thing, and they did it as they started to pray. Go back again and look at the content of this prayer. Again, it starts about 23 or 24, goes down to the verses we were looking at a moment ago. But this time I want you to look at it as I go through it and just simply note with me how they, first of all, they went to the Word, but more specifically to the fact that the reason they went to the Word is to understand what they were dealing with. What's God's perspective on the situation? Here's what they did. It says in verse 24, when they heard this, excuse me, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, and then they immediately began quoting Psalm 2. You, it is you who made the heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. In other words, Lord, we're not only reminding ourselves that you are sovereign Lord, we are going to also be reminded in this moment that it's your world. And you're in charge of it. And everything in it belongs to you, and everyone in it will answer to you. It's in your hand. It serves your purposes. Verse 25, you're the one who, by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant says, they continue to quote Psalm 2. Why do the Gentiles rage? Why do the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and their rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ, In other words, Lord, long before we arrived on the scene, you said this was all going to happen. Everything that happened to Jesus eight or nine weeks ago, everything that's happening to us now, David's saying 1,500 years earlier, this is the way it's going down, people. The world will not want to accept the Lord's Christ, his anointed one. The world will be appointed or or aligned against him. And what does that do? That means, oh, God said it was going to be this way. God said it will be like this. Guess what? It is. It makes sense now. In verse 28, or verse 27, excuse me, for truly, and here's here's how they know. They said, for truly in this city, we were all there to see it. They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod, representing the Jews, Pilate, representing the Gentiles, and the Romans, along with all the other Gentiles, and all the people of Israel. Guess what? Every single one of them was against Jesus. Just what David said in Psalm 2. Oh, the scripture interprets our situation. It tells us why the world is the way that it is. And then this is interesting. They they put all that together. And then in verse 28, they don't continue to quote scripture in verse 28. But what they say in verse 28 indicates they'd read more than just Psalm 2. Because... What it shows is they were in the process, if they had not already discovered it entirely, that even though everything seemed like it was out of control, Jesus is crucified and and they're being persecuted. They are reminded because somewhere in the Bible they had been told that God still had both hands on the wheel. Because here's what they say. In this city, verse 27, everything was aligned against Jesus. And and they put him to death. And now they're doing the same thing to us because Jesus told us that they would But what we also know is this, going back to our understanding that you are the sovereign Lord, is that they are doing whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. In other words, it wasn't their idea, it was yours. You really are Lord, they were saying. You really are God. You really do still have both hands on the wheel, even though everything seems out of control. I submit to you they would not have known that apart from the scriptures. They wouldn't have made that up. The Bible told them so. And and I think the imperative thing is that I learn, that you learn from their example, that we learn from what they did. What do we need to learn? That whenever we are under pressure of any kind, you got some pressure in your life today? Whenever you're under pressure of any, any kind, it is always right to turn to the Scriptures for clarity and to turn there. Everybody say first, not last, not later on. Not in addition to everything. First, because this word, the Bible, it says it's it's living and active. It can do things nothing, no other created thing can do, and it always tells us the truth. And even uh, even if it doesn't speak to your specific situation, you're going through something, and you can't find something in the life of David or Daniel or Jonah or whoever, and it says, "Oh, he went through the same thing." You can still find counsel for every kind of situation. And if you don't know where to look, that's when you go to your fellow believers and say, maybe you've been here, help me out. Because the Bible speaks to our, says of Jesus in Hebrews that he has been tested and tempted in every way that we are, and yet he never sinned. I think he has something to say about our pressure and our adversity, and it'll help us keep moving forward. So the first right turn the early church made, they turned to God for help. We should always do that. Even unbelievers pray when they're in trouble. We know that, but we know the God we're turning to. Secondly, along with that, we said, we see here that they turned to the Scriptures for clarity. Let the Bible explain what we're dealing with and what we're going through. And then thirdly, and this is really the rest of the chapter, verse 32 down to the end. The third and, and really equally important thing they did, or right coming up, right up behind it, is they turned to one another for strength. They turned to one another for encouragement and strength. You know, lately I've heard, and and there's nothing new under the sun, I've heard this kind of thing before, but I feel like lately I'm hearing it a lot. Not here, I'm hearing it in things I read and things I see and blogs and everything else. But I've been hearing from a variety of places, prominent Christians, believers with a platform, people that in some cases have built into my life through their writings and their ministry, talking about how they don't need the church anymore. I don't need the church, and I don't need a church. And here's where the argument, I'm, I'm simplifying a little bit, but it always goes here. I do not need the church to worship God. I can worship him anywhere, which I usually take to mean I prefer pillows over pews. That's just me. But then they also say this. And I don't need to be part of a church to love God's people. I love all of God's people. And wherever I encounter them, I want the freedom to go and see them wherever they are and whatever they're doing, and I will always love God's people. Now, I, I agree, you can worship God anywhere. That's one of the beauties of being a believer because he's with us. I agree that you can love all of God's people as you encounter them. But but like I said, I've been hearing this, processing it, and it's frustrating me because I don't know what to do with it. What's the answer for that? Because it seems logical. And and, and I've just over the last couple of weeks been been thinking about this, and then I encountered something in, in, a, in a book that we're studying together as a staff right now. We had a staff meeting earlier this week, and Greg is leading us through a book study, a book by Mark Dever, who's a pastor out in Washington, D.C. It's a book on what it means to be a healthy church, and, and in the middle of sort of dealing with all these sort of, what do you do with that? And, and, and maybe this morning you're dealing with that. Do I really need this? Uh, if that's where you are, um, I'm about to step on your toes, just fair warning, okay? Because this is what Mark Dever says in his book. And I think he's absolutely right. He says, if your goal is to love all Christians, let me suggest working toward it by first committing to a concrete group of real Christians with all of their foibles and follies. Commit to them, he says, through thick and thin for 80 years. Then come back and we'll talk about your progress in loving all Christians everywhere. If you say you love all Christians, find some real Christians and prove it, is what he's saying to me. To you, you say, Whoa, that's hard. Whoa, you're right. It is hard. Because all the Christians I know aren't perfect, and neither am I. And I bug you, and sometimes you may bug me, and, and we do things that and we're different from one another. And it's hard to love God's people. And I think that's why a lot of people chuck the church. They say things, and I heard somebody say this last week. It just slows me down. It just slows me down. All those people in church. This is a prominent believer. Telling people they don't need it anymore. We see that's hard. I would submit it was harder in Acts chapter four. Because here's the thing. Verse 32 gives us this stunningly beautiful picture of the church, and this is where people, and, and understandably, in isolation, this is where it breaks down because we read Acts four thirty two, and this is what it says knowing that they're like beyond 5,000 strong at this point. The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Not one of them claimed anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property. And we go, well, we are so far from that. Doesn't sound like any church I've ever gone to. We go, maybe we've just blown it. Maybe we can't have... And we say, it's just too hard today. We're too different. Sorry... Go back to Acts chapter 2. Let me remind you of the pool that this sample set was taken from. These 5,000, 10,000, however many believers they were. Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost, first 3,000 people in. Here's what we're told about them. Acts 2.9, they were Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamians, Judeans, Cappadocians from Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the districts of Libya around Cyrene. There were visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. There were Cretans and there were Arabs. And that's the church. That's where the church came from. I didn't count them. I'm guessing 14, maybe different people groups. It's a whole lot more different. I mean, look around. You can't say that about us. We may be different, we're not that different. And yet it says when we get to Acts chapter four, and the pressure is on, they were of one heart and one accord, and they were taking care of each other. How does that happen? I'll tell you how it happens. It happens when the believe somebody somewhere, very quickly had to make the choice that our common bond in Jesus Christ is more important than all that stuff that makes us different. Sure you're different, I am too. We don't negate those, we don't ignore them, we don't diminish our differences, we just say there's something greater that binds us. It's Christ. It's Christ. That's what, that accounts for the difference. They weren't a perfect church either, but they made a right turn. They made a right choice. And and the reason they can make the right choice under pressure is because they've been making it. You don't make this in the spur of the moment. You do that day by day. They turn to each other for strength. And look quickly at what Luke says it produced in those last few verses. By turning to each other for encouragement and strength, it says number one, it enhanced their unity. Verse 32, the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Not one of them claimed anything belonging was his own. All things were common property. Their unity got stronger. Their unity went deeper, which in turn probably accounts for the second thing that it it prompted, that it led to, which was what I would call an expanded witness, an expanded witness for Jesus Christ. Because verse 33 makes it very clear that instead of focusing on their problems and obsessing about the... The adversity. They acknowledged it, but they didn't major on it. It says they just continued to uphold the answer. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. With great power, not with great trepidation, they continued to do what Jesus told them to do go and be my witnesses in this world. They had enhanced unity. They had an expanded witness, and adversity was just another opportunity to to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here's the last, the really cool thing. Their witness was not just one of words. we got to speak the gospel, okay? We have to tell people the gospel. But what the final four verses of Acts chapter 4 show is that they also put it into tangible, sacrificial action that the difference Christ made in their lives showed up in what I would refer to as exceptional acts of kindness, Enhanced unity, expanded witness, exceptional acts of kindness. Let me ask you something. Do you ever wonder how people without Christ make it? I mean, life is as hard for unbelievers as it is for believers. It's plain hard for believers, oftentimes. Do you ever just wonder, how, how do they get through it? Where do you go with the adversity? Where do you go with the pain? Where do you go with the rejection? Where do you go with the stuff that this world throws at you because it's so broken? I wonder all the time, where would I be if not for Christ? Listen, I know the world doesn't always get it wrong, and I know that we certainly don't always get it right, and I know the church lets things slip through the cracks, and I know there are probably needs represented here where we didn't do the job that we could have or should have done in a given situation, but I get frustrated when that's all I hear about and maybe I have a unique vantage point because of the role I'm in. I think I and maybe some others on our staff and our leadership team maybe have just get to see this in a little more action. But let me assure you that, that it's a really beautiful thing when believers get it right. We're not perfect. We don't do it perfectly, but it is an incredible, beautiful thing when, 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 when we're under whatever kind of pressure, the church turns to one another for strength. And if you've ever been on the receiving end of that, or been involved in the giving of it, you know it's it's unexplainable. The world can't replicate it. Not even close. We don't get it perfect, but it's beautiful. Now, in verses 34 through 37, they talk about, it, it, it majors on finances. There's a big picture example, verses 33 and 34. We've seen this already. Sacrificial sharing. When the pressure came on, they just kept sharing. They didn't all go, oh, I better protect what's mine. No, it says they kept sharing, and then in verses, th- that's 34 and 35, then in 36 and 37, we're giving, an, a, giving a specific example of Barnabas. Not going to talk about that today, because Barnabas becomes a major player in the chapters to come. He'll get his moment in the sun, but they give us this example. Big picture, specific example. What we're given here is finances. They came through with the cash when people were in need. But if you've been a part of the church for very long and you've done what Mark Dever says, you've committed to a local body, you know that it's way more than cash handouts. Listen, those help. <laughs> They're nice. I've been on the receiving end of that a few times when I was in a place of need, in different times in my walk with Christ and the body of Christ. But that's not all there is. There's so much more. And when the church does this and we do it well, it's beautiful. I was thinking this week, just, I was trying to pick one example from my life. Some of you know a couple years ago, my, at the time my youngest son, Silas, he fell and he fractured his skull. He was bleeding in, in the brain, and we were in the hospital and in the emergency room. And I got to be, for, for one of those times, on the receiving end of this sort of thing. Let me tell you, it's amazing. I can't explain it. And on one hand, I had somebody, I did have somebody press some cash into my hand, and I will always remember that sister in Christ, and I'm always going to be grateful to her. She just said, I don't, I, I don't know what you're going to need this for. I just know on days like this, you need it. And she was right. But I remember equally well the couple who showed up with a bag of tacos from Taco Bell. (laughs) And they said, we thought you and Luke might be hungry, and we ate the whole thing. And it was just the body of Christ, tangible act of kindness. And there were people all day and night, I remember the elder who came first and prayed with me when I was scared out of my mind, and how encouraging that was. And I thought, how many people stand in the ER when their life's falling apart and nobody comes? And the church does this. We don't always get it right, but it's beautiful when we do it. And the people who came and went all day and night and took care of the kids and, and, and figured stuff out and just let us walk through. Well, and, and listen, your example may be much more extreme, but if you've been in the body of Christ and you've seen that happen, you know there's nothing like it. We don't get it perfect. We make some mistakes. But I also think that a whole lot often than we get or give ourselves credit for, God uses us to bless each other when the pressure is on in extraordinary ways, and it's through exceptional kindness. And Jesus is the only explanation. So here's the big idea of the end of Acts chapter 4, which is really just a continuation of everything we saw last week in this story as well. Here's the big idea that I think we're supposed to take away from it, which is that adversity, which will come, is an opportunity to magnify Jesus Christ. Your adversity mine is an opportunity to magnify Jesus Christ. But it comes down to choices. Do we make the right turn? Do we turn to God for help? Do we turn to scripture for clarity? Do we turn to one another for encouragement and strength when it's easier to go home and say, I've got too much to do today already? We've got to make the right turns, and God uses that. And then what Acts chapter 4 shows us, and the book will continue to put on full display, is that, that if we will, and when we do, God does extraordinary things. And Father, we, we thank you that your word tells us this. Father, thank you for maybe just opening or reawakening some of us, me included this morning, to, to how very different the church of Jesus Christ is meant and was created and actually can be. Father, there's some folks in this room today, there's some families, some couples, some young people facing extraordinary adversity and pressure. It's financial, it's relational, it's, it's, it's the job, it's the kids, it's it's whatever. And Father, w- when the pressure's on, we just want it to go away. And sometimes in your mercy, you you take it away. But sometimes... You ask us to walk through it because you're you're changing something, you're growing something. Father, I pray that we would make the right turns when we're under pressure, that we would see the adversity, whether for our faith or whatever else, as an opportunity to look to and to magnify Jesus Christ. Father, not to deny that it's hard, not to pretend like it's easy, but to realize that however hard or challenging it may be, we serve the sovereign Lord the ruler of unchallengeable power who also happens to be our Father and loves us very, very much. Father, may we leave with with a recognition of your love and your grace and of the magnificence of Jesus Christ as we go from here today back into this world filled with pressure. In Jesus' name, amen.